everyone. Welcome to the Black Dog Institute's eMental Health in Practice podcast for healthcare practitioners, where we discuss topics relating to mental health and relevant e-mental health tools and programs that can assist healthcare workers in providing care. I'm Phoebe Holden-Sakumira, a GP with an interest in mental health. This podcast was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal people, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, their elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is a distillation of some of the important information from Webinar 59 on the topic of climate change and mental health. We had three fantastic panelists. Dr. Anna Seth is a GP working in Tasmania with an interest in mental health and climate change. She's the co-chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia Mental Health Special Interest Group and a facilitator with Psychology for a Safe Climate. Dr. Brenda Dobia is a psychologist, educator and researcher working with young people. She's an adjunct fellow in the School of Education at Western Sydney University and is a clinical practitioner at Headspace. Dr. Chloe Watfern is a researcher, writer and facilitator in the area of climate distress and also works as a research associate at the Black Dog Institute. In this podcast, we discussed how climate change affects mental health and some of the ways in which climate distress can manifest. We also discussed how we as mental health clinicians respond and provide support for people experiencing climate distress. Um, Where are we now in 2023 when it comes to climate change? Well, we're at a really important juncture in our history, in fact. I think, as we've talked about, some people are probably familiar with what's happening in the climate, but others might have not really engaged with it for a while. Um, But as mental health professionals, I think we really do need to have a sense of the urgency and the scale and the severity of this issue, Um, and also on a a personal level, as we've discussed, we need to not just intellectually, but actually, what does this mean for us? So, I mean, Climate change is well underway. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening now. So Australia is already warmed by 1.47 degrees. um, And just in the last week, the World Meteorological Organization's released a report that suggests we're going to start breaching 1.5 degrees, which we know is the safe limit that we need to not try and cross uh, within the next few years. What does that mean for us? I mean, there's some obvious impacts in terms of extreme weather and disasters. And we know now we're in a situation where 80% of us here in Australia have been exposed to a climate-driven disaster of some form since 2019. So the commonest would be heat waves, but also we're talking bushfire, floods, storm, drought, and often not just one thing in isolation. We're seeing compounding disasters now that we're living through. Um, So, you know, there's a really well-established scientific consensus that we have to do everything to address this. It's going to take a massive global effort, but we potentially still have a chance. So I think the IPCC latest report put it really well when they said um, any further delay in concerted anticipatory global action on adaptation and mitigation will miss a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all, which is pretty stark and hard to hear. And I reflect on that as a clinician, if we were getting that kind of warning about a disease or an outbreak, we would be throwing everything that we had at it. Um, so yeah, we're it's we're at a critical spot. It's quite dramatic to think that eighty percent of us have been, you know, in Australia have been impacted 
um, by a severe weather event. But I think there are a lot of us who think, oh, well, you know, climate change, it's not really affecting us right now or it's not really impacting things. Or we might even think, oh, mental health and climate change, we haven't really, I haven't really seen many people presenting with that. Um, and I know that you think that climate change really can impact our mental health on lots of different levels. Can you just talk us through the mechanisms of that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's not just me. There's a big scientific consensus that talks about the the broad scale of the impacts of, of climate on mental health. Um, and I think the fact that a lot of it is these kind of complex interactions. So maybe on a surface level, they're not necessarily, they don't hit you in the face, but um, but you know, it's the interaction between these impacts on our physical environment and our social um, and economic and cultural contexts that really drives a lot of this change. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, climate anxiety grabs a lot of headlines and media attention, but climate change is something that's going to impact mental health regardless of whether or not people are worried about climate change or even aware that climate change is sort of behind some of the things that they're they're feeling and experiencing, uh, we can really expect to see worsening mental health across the board. And in all of it, a really key thing to hold in mind is the way that climate change exploits existing inequalities. So we can think of it, it's been described as a threat multiplier for those who are already vulnerable. So if you're very young or elderly, for women, um, if you're poor or belong to a marginalized group of any sort, if you're already sick or have a mental illness, you're more likely to be severely impacted. And in all of this, um, I think we need to hold um, front and center the fact that it's First Nations people around the world who are likely to bear some of the worst of these impacts. And you know, globally, it's nations and populations that have contributed some of the least that are going to be the most impacted, which uh, you know is, is really where the issue of social justice um, in climate um, becomes apparent. So you know, we, we know that we've got these direct exposures to heat and other extreme weather events that affect mental health. Um, and, you know, the impacts of disaster on mental health can go on for years long after the disaster has happened. But heat's an interesting one because sometimes that kind of goes underneath the radar a little bit. But overall, heat's actually our deadliest natural disaster. And in terms of mental health, we know it increases suicide and self-harm, emergency presentations and interpersonal violence as well. And then we've got all of these flow on sort of indirect effects. So when the environment changes and our air, water, food, self-shelter, safe shelter and livelihoods come under threat, then we start to see displacement. Um, you know, migration, breakdown of health and social infrastructure and all of these things that start to build and build in terms of community distress, especially if you're already vulnerable to begin with. And then on top of that, we've got those kind of impacts that come about through the witnessing of these changes. Um, you know, and that might be you're you're seeing it directly because it's affecting your community, but also increasingly we're exposed through media, news, education in schools. So a whole host of channels. And then of course, all of these things kind of mishmash together. So, um, you know, it's not like a, a neat boxes of one thing or the other thing or the other thing. It's all, all of it together. Oh gosh. Um, I'm interested in your comment around heat um, impacting mental health. Um, what's the mechanism behind that? So I guess in some ways it's thought that you know, heat um, just increases our levels of activity and agitation. Um, you know, I know I feel a bit 
hot and bothered sometimes on a hot day. Uh, but one other thing that's um, notable about heat waves is that it's not just the daytime temperature that's hot. It also doesn't cool down at night and that impacts people's sleep, which has a flow on impact on mental health. So, um, you know, it's probably through a number of different mechanisms, but it's a widely observed phenomena. So what does the research tell us about distress that's related to climate change? We've actually got some sizable studies now done both in Australia and internationally to help us actually unpack that a bit. There was a, a, a large study recently that came out uh, with Mission and Origin Australia, looking at 18,000 people between the age of 15 and 19 in Australia. And it showed that the environment is one of the commonest concerns. Um, and across all age groups, we know that about half of Australians have at least some level of concern about climate change. Um, and a quarter of those would be very worried about climate change. And we also, of course, do have a proportion of our population that are disengaged from the issue. You know, other issues are more important to them. But um, one thing that I think is worth keeping in mind is that the proportion of our population who uh, are disbelieving or in denial about climate change is actually quite small, about 10%. But often they're a noisy 10%, so they can seem like there's more of them, um, but they're actually in the minority. Um, so overall, the, when these trends suggest that it's, it's women and young people who tend to be more affected. And some of the international studies actually show an even higher level of concern than we're seeing in these Australian studies. Um, and then in terms of like what that distress looks like for people, uh, there's an Australian study looked at about 5,000 uh, people across different age groups and demographics. And what they found is that, um, you know, we're seeing about a quarter of people overall having some form of either eco-anxiety or post-traumatic stress, but also this kind of interesting entity of pre-traumatic stress. So people who haven't necessarily had direct exposure to an event, but have intrusive thoughts and worries about what might happen in the future. So, yeah, that's kind of curious, um, but understandable. I think. Uh, some other things that we see are that groups who are already marginalized are more likely to experience higher rates of distress. So the um, origin study showed that um, youth who are rural, indigenous, or identified as LGBTIQ were more likely to show distress in relation to their climate concern. And the other thing that's a really clear trend is that if you've been exposed to extreme weather event or climate-driven disaster, you're more likely to have a higher level of concern. So I think, yeah, we are starting to build up a pattern, a picture of what the patterns are in the community. So I've already sort of alluded to this being a difficult thing for us all to talk about, that we're all sort of in the same boat together, whether we like it or not. <laughs> There's no way escaping that reality. Um, what are some of the challenges that we face, Chloe, when we try and think and talk about climate change? I guess climate change is it's everywhere and it affects every part of our life. So in a sense, it's just such a huge, overwhelming issue that it's hard to kind of access it without feeling overwhelmed yourself. Um, it's like, you know, in kind of theory terms, it's referred to as a hyper object. We can't kind of grasp it in concrete terms. And I think that makes it something difficult to talk about in, you know, day-to-day -day conversation. And it's also kind of like yeah, a wicked problem. We don't immediately know what, what, what we might do as an individual, although there are a plethora of things, but, um, so it's easy to, but it's easy to kind of de-emphasize day to day. Climate change isn't usually something that we can see. It's something that we know about because we read the, the latest IPCC or we know that 
certain things emit more carbon because we've seen the carbon footprint calculator or whatever it is, but we don't feel it as much. So it's harder to kind of access. And then when it's not concrete, it's harder to talk about. And that kind of does create a very uncomfortable cognitive dissonance, which I definitely still feel daily, which is a kind of knowing and not knowing. You know, I know that this action that I'm taking right now my, you know, I'm I'm jumping in the car when I could have taken my bike or something like that. So some of these things that I'm describing are sort of probably examples of my own climate anxiety. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest things that we need to remember is that, you know, we are not responsible. And I think there's a lot of guilt involved in talking about climate change, which I definitely experience. But I'm learning to shift my the focus of my um, blame toward who are most responsible and they are the people who continue to extract fossil fuels despite the best available scientific evidence saying that we should not and the governments who aren't making you know the strong enough commitments to reducing um, emissions so um, that's a practice that I'm still learning to to you know inhabit and I think that does stop us from talking about climate change because when I do try and bring it up with people, they start focusing on their own actions as well. You know, the coffee cup that they might be holding while we're talking that was that's not, you know, reusable or whatever it is. And so um, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, the, you know, the 10% or maybe less, let's hope less, who are um, denying our, or, you know, showing derision if we talk about climate change as a real issue. And we all do know someone, I'm sure, in our family or in our friendship circles or further afield, you know, even if it's just the um, the radio jock that you hear on, you know, hear through secondhand. But there are people out there who are very um, confrontational about um, climate change and about particularly if we start to talk about how we feel about climate change. Um, so... Uh, I think that can make people cautious about raising it, not knowing how other people stand. Thanks, Chloe. And, you know, you've talked about some of the things that hold us back from talk, starting a conversation around climate change or climate-related distress. But, Chloe, can you share with us, you know, what do we know about um, climate-related distress um, as an entity and, and how do we go about unpacking that? Yeah, so... I think the key takeaway is that it's it's not a pathology, it's not a disorder that needs to be um, treated or um, corrected. It's um, it's a rational response to what is a very real existential threat. And so part of, I think, um, when people express their distress about the climate, it's just really important to validate what they're saying or at least acknowledge that, you know, that, that feeling is responding to something that is happening in the world and not to dismiss the reality that, that we face. Um, you don't obviously don't want to, you know, alarm people beyond rational distress. <laughs> it is a real, this is, this is real. This is um, an existential threat. Um, but within the feelings that climate change provokes, anxiety is only just part of, of the kind of spectrum or emotional soup that, our climate reality brings up for people. I really like that. And I, I also think it's just so important to, to stress that this is not necessarily um, an anxiety like we'd consider a clinical anxiety disorder, you know, and, and so because, because of the nature of it 
and also because of what we think is um, a suitable response to it. And so I think there are some, you know, interesting philosophical questions about how we sort of um, approach this if we if we encounter it in our clinical context, isn't it? Yeah. Anna, um, tell us, what are the coping strategies that um, are constructive um, for dealing with climate distress and then maybe not so constructive? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, we all have a range of different coping strategies that we employ. And um, a lot of the research that's looked at this has um, identified these three broad categories of ways that one might cope. Um, so the first one is emotion-focused coping. So these are efforts to kind of deal with the feelings directly. And that might include talking to a friend or family member or a teacher about it. And we know that those are actually the people who are most likely to, to be, have this discussed with, um, or doing things that help to reduce your stress or relax or, you know, spending some time in nature and, and de-stressing or creative expression, art. But it might also mean other attempts to get rid of our emotions, like just not thinking about it, mm. drinking mm. or distracting ourselves or pretending that it's not a problem or uh, finding, you know, it's all someone else's problem, they can deal with it. So the second method is this kind of problem-focused coping, which, you know, when it's adaptive, might look at learning about solutions, learning about the problem, learning about what we can do, and hopefully learning that we need to collaborate with others to do it, that it's not something that individual action um, is necessarily the most effective way forward. Because as we know, and as Chloe said, a lot of the most significant impacts are driven by corporate and government action and policy here. But in the negative side of problem-focused coping, we can just become overwhelmed mm. by um, sort of just a sense of guilt and paralysis of not knowing what to do because it's so much. Or we can get caught in sort of doom scrolling, which I have certainly fallen victim to myself mm. <laughs> um, during the night when breastfeeding small children is my favorite time to doom scroll. Um, and that can lead us to burn out and not be able to engage with the issue at all. And then there's this other way of looking at it, which is described as meaning-focused coping. So really, this is about um, finding authentic sources of hope. Um, you know, people in whom we can trust, things which inspire us. And that might include looking back to events of history where people have overcome significant um, challenges, or it might be looking forward to sort of positive visions that we can see in the mm -hmm. future. Um, and overall, those kind of meaning-focused coping strategies are, are thought to be some of the most effective one, but we need to use them all. So let me just kind of add something to that. I think it's really important to understand the scale of the issues and the scale at which we can take action, mm -hmm. uh, which includes kind of understanding what our individual responsibility is. You know, we're embedded in a highly individualistic consumer-oriented culture, which has kind of shaped our identities and sense of who we are and narrowed us and and sort of dislocated us from the earth that we, we're actually dependent on. And that means that we kind of go to these individual uh, kind of responses. But to understand that actually it's that overconsumption <laughs> that's behind all of this uh, and that that's operating at a societal level, then it gives us another kind of place to sort of direct our energies and also to understand that you're embedded in a system that's doing things that you can't change the whole thing all at once. Mm. But you can maybe take some strategic actions in concert with others and, you know, start off your own little ripple effect 
that, that's going to spread out because that's the kind of change, a pervasive change that's needed. And that's the sort of change that we might see on a cultural level to change exactly. you know, the discourse and how exactly. our whole community might feel about this issue. Mm. So this is really interesting, isn't it? You know, some people say that it should be uh, talked about routinely in consultations or as part of assessment, uh, but the others think, oh, you know, it really depends or um, only you'd sort of wait for the individual themselves to bring it up. Um, so, so you know, if it is something that's coming up um, in the consultation room, um, Anna, how can we be facilitating um, constructive and supportive conversations around climate distress? Well, one of the things we can do right at the outset to sort of signal that it's safe to raise the topic, if it is a concern, is to have some visual material in our waiting room or our consult room, like we do with lots of other issues, say around you know, family violence or gender, just sort of signaling to people that we're a safe person to raise this with. Because as Brenda was saying, and I've certainly heard from people I've worked with too, this invalidating response is unfortunately all too common and a little bit surprising because I don't think we would necessarily invalidate other concerns that mm. people came to us with. But somehow, um, you know, I've certainly spoken to young people who've been told, you know, why are you so worried about the weather? Um, <laughs> and yeah, that just seems like a very surprising response to somebody in distress. So we know that if we, um, you know, we can maybe ask some open-ended questions and it might just spontaneously bring up that concern because we know from the research, right, that it's a majority concern for a lot of young people. So it might just be some questions about, you know, how are you feeling about the future? You know, the, mm. how are you feeling about the future for, for you, for your family, you know, for the world in general? And if it comes up, then you can take that opportunity to explore, well, you know, what's that person's sense of what climate and ecological changes mean for them? What's been their experience? Have they actually been through an exposure to uh, extreme weather event? And we know, for example, that you know, early exposure to extreme weather events has significant impacts on later mental health. Um, what are the attitudes of the people around them? Like, have they had people in their family or friends or at school that they've been able to talk with about this? Or have they been shut down or just felt like they couldn't talk about it? So we need to explore all of those things, along with obviously looking at all of the other aspects of a comprehensive mental health assessment. And particularly, I think if people are feeling a sense of hopelessness, exploring risk and suicidal ideation. Um, but also getting a sense in all of that, you know, is there appraisal of the situation based on a rational assessment? And, and as we've heard, you know, it's, it's a very rational thing to be concerned about, but it's probably not going to be the breakdown of society in the next week. So we need to kind of just be keeping those judgments so, or keeping the, those frames in the background um, as we're working with people to sort of get to the bottom of, of what it means for them and how it's impacting them. Thank you, Anna. Chloe, you've already shared some of your, in some of your story how you sort of felt that moving into action allowed you to um, have a sense of hope going forward. Um, can you talk to us about um, how we can, in, you know, foster that sense of hope um, in the in the people around us when it comes to climate change? Yeah, um, I think a big part of my story has been about connection, connecting with others, and finding out about all these wonderful people who are doing everything they can to, you know, care for the world and each other. And so for me, that's very hopeful. And 
just riffing off what Brenda was saying earlier about, you know, thinking of ourselves as part of a system. So the world is the weight of the world is on our shoulders. We are part of the world and we're all connected. And so I think I'm coming to an understanding of that in personally and also try to imbue that in other people in the conversations that I have. So, you know, acknowledging is about holding intention, the reality of what we are facing and the distress that that does rightly provoke, but the kind of potential of what we can achieve and what people are achieving daily. And that, yeah, that that's hope and that's, that's a wonderful thing to be a part of. Like it's, you know, when we all rally to a, a cause, that's, that, that's inspiring and that's. And it's empowering as well, isn't it? It's empowering, it? Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when we're talking about all of this, some sort of acceptance and commitment therapies do, um, therapy principles do sort of come to mind um, that it's not so much necessarily about, uh, you know, challenging the thought processes so much as, um, you know, holding them, uh, learning to hold them um, given that there's so much tension there, um, but then also getting in touch with your own values and letting those drive drive action. Um, Anna, what are, what are the things that support values guided action, but also what are some of the things that are less helpful when it comes to that? Sure. So I think you know, we need to acknowledge, and it's been said uh, by the others already, that you know, no one can do everything here. This is not a problem that one person can fix, but everyone has some power to do something. And it's helping people connect with what that looks like for them in a way that's sustainable, that draws on the resources that they have available to them. So it's a bit of a kind of a dance between wanting to give people a sense of agency and empowerment, but not wanting to make people feel ashamed or inadequate or like they have to be some perfect version of an activist that does everything right. Um, you know, I drive to a lot of the climate rallies that I go to so I can get there in my lunch break from work. It's, you know, it doesn't have to be perfection here. Um but I think it's important also to be to be mindful that um, you know it's a collective problem, and we need to find the solutions collectively. But also, you know, not everyone can take all kinds of action. So you've got to have privilege to be able to go to a rally and do something that might be arrestable. Uh, yeah, that's clearly not safe for an Indigenous Australian to do. So you've also got to have a certain amount of economic privilege to be able to buy an electric car. So we have to think about what solutions do people actually have available to them and steering them towards things which are collective because we can't solve mental health issues on our own in our head. Neither can we solve climate change on our own in our head. It's only if we actually come together um, and do things together, remembering that individual actions are not the problem. We've got 10 companies that are responsible for half of Australian emissions, that's where we need to be concentrating our efforts. So we need to do that at scale. I'm hearing that that um, theme of, of the collective act um, coming through very strongly tonight. Yeah. Both Anna and Brenda, I think you've talked about climate activists. Now, I guess um, they're probably not um, the majority um, of the people that we might come in contact with clinically um, when it comes to climate distress. But um, they're probably a subset of people who are very invested and very involved. Um, but over that period, over their involvement, they 
may develop something called climate burnout. Is that right, Brenda? Certainly kind of seen a lot of that and and indeed um, had colleagues involved in that. And, and even when I was teaching, probably on the edge of it myself as well. I think, I think, you know, there's been a huge responsibility borne by a few people who've seen this coming for a long time, you know, and been trying to take action and trying to warn people. So um, that's, you know, burnout is is an extreme form of, of stress, you know, when you perceive that what's required is way beyond the resources that you have available. And when you're at that coalface, continually, then you're going to be more susceptible to this. You know, so so I guess there's two things that I, I would highlight in terms of dealing with burnout is, is, is one, you know, from a clinical point of view is helping people understand people who are in that situation and then sort of go a bit lighter on themselves, you know. So the self-compassion piece is really important there. And I also feel, you know, putting putting things again in the in the bigger picture um it is that tendency to take everything on ourselves um that 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 overloads us but you know the the other side of that is more people need to step up <laughs> you know if there's more people to share the burden and 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 actually then we can actually make the change you know it's a big issue involving lots of different different players for sure um and and this really does come to mind that you know parents, but also people considering parenthood, um, you know, have have you know seem to be factoring in uh, the climate and and the planet into some of their decision making, but also how you know how they feel about about climate change. Um, Anna, what is it that we can do to understand those needs and to support parents and children? Well, I think we need to have good conversations with people who raise this about what it is that's driving that concern. You know, for some people, it might be actually a fear about the environmental impact of having a child, which, you know, I think there's a lot to unpack there, but, uh, you know, people are not necessarily, are not the entirety of this problem. And we need people to fix this problem just as people got us into it. And, and again, I think it's about making it an, an undue emphasis on individual guilt and responsibility that drives a lot of that. So it's worth unpacking and exploring that. But the other side of it is people also have a deep fear about what their children will experience. Um, you know, I'm myself, my youngest was born in 2020, and I can very much relate to that concern and that uncertainty of not knowing what the future holds. But ultimately, I think, you know, we the future is not yet written. There is an unknown there, and we can we can choose to fill that with um, a positive vision of the future. Mm. Uh, Brenda, um, we've talked about the importance of that connection and taking, you know, f- feeling like we're in it with other people. Um, what what are the, some of the groups that are available that people can actually get involved with to feel like they're part of something bigger? So just just kind of really quickly on that, um, the idea of a climate cafe has been pioneered both here with Psychology for Safe Climate and um, through the Global Climate Psychology Alliance, really creating the safe space for people to get together and actually work through and talk through those emotions that we heard earlier often don't have a space for that. And we've got the Good Grief Network, 
that you know allows for that too. That the work of Joanna Macy um, and her associates, you know, have kind of championed that idea of active hope, the work that reconnects. So these are all collective things that are that are really really important. I think that's crucial. That this is not stuff that we can hold on our own, as we've already said. And psychology for a safe climate has been, you know, providing those spaces for professionals um, to, to explore the issues for themselves. So those are all really important, I think. Thanks, Brenda. Um, Anna, what, what are the, what's the role of mental health professionals in addressing climate change beyond what's happening in the consultation room? Um, yeah, I think as mental health professionals, we have a, a responsibility to think about the health and well-being of the population and communities that we serve, not just the individual that we're working with. And I think it's important that everyone considers how they might work in their professional sphere on this topic. So we know that health voices are really impactful. Um, Health messages cut through. So we might be drawn to doing something as individual action as a private citizen, but we can actually have a lot more impact when we step into our professional role. And we should absolutely feel okay about this being our lane. And I would draw from examples where health professionals have spoken out about uh, important public health threats before, gun control, smoking, poverty, lots and lots of examples that we can draw from. And also, um, I think everyone should be aware that we have the support and backing of our colleges and professional bodies increasingly. You know, Almost every professional body uh, for health and mental health care now in Australia and worldwide has a position statement about climate change, and some have really extensive resources. RACGP has a lot of excellent resources that we can draw on, and we've mentioned a couple of the Australian Psychological Society resources tonight as well, which are really fantastic. So we shouldn't feel that we're on the fringe if we speak about this. All righty. So we've already been touched on a number of of resources, but Anna, could you just talk us through um, those resources that might be helpful for us um, as clinicians or, or, or our patients who might be um, struggling with climate anxiety or distress? Yeah. So um, I think for clinicians who want to go a bit deeper into this, so we've done a bit of a romp through, but wanting to, to do a deep dive, Psychology for a Safe Climate has a professional development program um, that people can work through a series of um, interactive webinars um, to deepen their understanding of this issue. The Australian Psychological Society and Psychology for a Safe Climate collaborated on a couple of great resources. One is the Climate Change Empowerment Handbook, um, and the other is Coping with Climate Change Distress. So both of those are really useful to have a look through to give a bit of an overview of what we've been talking about, but also perhaps to share with patients um, who are looking for some resources to support them. Additionally, I think we've mentioned the Good Grief Network, which has these online peer-facilitated spaces. Um, I like to recommend sometimes podcasts that people might like to listen to for a bit of a dose of inspiration and hopefulness and outrage and optimism is one of my favorites. Um, Then also, I I think hopefully um, many of us might be aware, but uh, Phoenix has the fantastic Disaster Mental Health Hub, um, which is just an an absolute um, treasure trove of resources. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast on supporting people experiencing distress in response to climate change. A big thank you to Anna, 
Brenda and Chloe for sharing your expertise and experience with us. All the resources and services that we discussed are available via the Black Dog Institute website in the Health Professional Resource and Education Hub under Webinar 59. Thanks so much for listening today. Until next time, bye. Bye.